Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. We just take it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. So we'll go as far as we can. We've prepared 45 and 46 if necessary. As we look in the 45th chapter, verse 1, the first thing I want you to see is, uh, before we read, we're going to find this is the word of the Lord to Cyrus and to Israel and to the ends of the earth. The three things you'll find in this chapter. And in verses 1 through 13, it's, Thus saith Jehovah to Cyrus. Verses 1 through 13. There are three divisions in this chapter. Verses 14 through 17, Thus saith Jehovah to Israel. And really, he says, Israel shall be saved. And then verses 18 through 25, Thus saith Jehovah to the ends of the earth. And as far as the ends of the earth is concerned, he says, Every knee shall bow. So we find these three divisions here, at least in this chapter. There are other ways you could divide it, but we'll take it that way. And then we'll talk about verse by verse as we go down. Cyrus is here called God's anointed in this first verse. Look, in verse 1, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two levied gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. In those two verses, we have a great deal to talk about. First of all, Cyrus is called in this chapter God's anointed. In fact, Messiah. Messiah is anointed, means Messiah. We know it's not talking about Jesus here because we find that he has a special place in the Old Testament, this man Cyrus, this king. And Jehovah called him by name but for the sake of Israel. And he was God's instrument, called uh, and prepared to make the restoration of the remnant possible. And is likewise a type of Christ through whom alone the promises of God to the nation can be accomplished. So he's only a picture of what the future Messiah, the real, the only, uh, uh, the main person, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be able to fulfill all the promises that's made to this nation of Israel. But he did fulfill them as far as the Old Testament was concerned. And you read in the book of Ezra, chapter 1 and verse 1, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, put it also in writing. And, and so he tells what he will put in uh, uh, use Cyrus to do. This is the only uh, instance that a Gentile ruler is called, is spoken of as anointed, as God's anointed especially. And so he's speaking to Cyrus. Cyrus is called God's anointed and he was designed to uh, and qualified for his great service by the counsel of God. And we'll find a lot of things about him in this first verse. Let's look at it in detail. Thus saith the Lord who is anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden. God is going to hold him up in what he has purposed for him to do. We read of that purpose. I didn't read all of it in Ezra chapter 1, but verse 2, it says this, 
Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord of the heaven of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And so he was charged with a great responsibility uh, in his day. But in Isaiah 45, verse 1, notice, he says, Whose right hand I have holden. In other words, he was going to give him the strength. I have strengthened. If God calls anyone to a special service, he will give him or her the strength for, uh, for that person to do that service. So, you, you know, a lot of people say, well, I'd serve God in this way or that way if I had the strength. Well, whatever God calls you to do, he'll give you the strength. And if he wouldn't give you the strength, he wouldn't call you to do it. I've always wondered about how, you know, that I could preach because uh, I certainly felt uh, incapable of it all. And I felt like the, if uh, I were to do that work for the Lord, he'd have to give me the strength. Well, so far, I've found that when it's needed, he, he gives you the strength and the ability. And, and he wants you to study. The Bible says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And if you'll apply yourself, he will strengthen you in that uh, effort that he in that work that he's called you to do doesn't mean that you can just sit aside and say God just give me all the strength to do the work and 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 you know it'll be done no he expects you to to serve in the very best way that you know know how and are able to do but he will give you the strength it says to subdue nations before him and this was the strength he was going to give this king of Persia and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two levered gates, and the gates shall not be shut. He says, I will loose the loins, or the girdle, or the strength of the kings. There were a hundred iron gates of Babylon with posts of brass, 25 on each side of the city. But he says here, he speaks of two special or levered gates. And the gates shall not be shut. But there are more than just the two. When you study, you'll find out that there, that the whole city had 25 gates on all four sides. So making a total of 100. And the gates were of, of uh, iron. And they, were, they had posts of brass. So God says, I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. In other words, God would clear the way. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. So God not only strengthened him to do his work, but God went before him in the doing of his work. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and, and the hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. God says, what I'm going to do, I'm going to do it through your strength and, and I'm going to go before you and cause you to perform the task that I have before you. And it's that, the, the, that you may know, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. When it speaks of the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places by Research, we found out there are 34,000 pounds of gold in these treasures and 500,000 pieces of silver. I mean, all the wealth, all the riches that were hidden treasures. And he says, I'm going to give you these things, the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places. And then he says in verse 4, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, 
Remember we played on those two words, uh, two titles in our last lesson? Jacob and Israel, both the same person. But Jacob was his uh, earthly name, or we might say fleshly name. We have a fleshly name as well as a spiritual name. And Israel was his spiritual name. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect. You remember we spoke of Jacob being a manipulator and a scoundrel, and you know he needed God's grace, didn't he? And then Israel, as he, as Jacob wrestled with with the angel of God, God gave him a new name. Says, "I'll call your name Israel, as as uh, that you have power with God as a prince. You have power with God." And then in verse uh, four again, it says, "I have called." I have even called thee by thy name. Even called thee by thy name. The true God was unknown to Cyrus, and yet God foreknew him, and he called him by his name. I have surnamed thee. In other words, I've surnamed thee. I've named you before. Though thou hast not known me. Look at that. God calls and chooses people before they've ever known him. He called Jeremiah. We remember we referred to Jeremiah. He says, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Before you were born, before they came forth out of the womb, I ordained thee to be a prophet to the nations. And God chooses in his foreknowledge those that he will have to serve him. Paul says that God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen. Among the Gentiles. So God knows. Can you imagine this? Here you were a little child. And God had a purpose for you. A plan for you. You say, well, I wasn't even saved. Well, He still had a plan for you. In due time, you were you accepted the Lord. But the Bible says you were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. So if you were chosen in Him, the time element is all that matters. Because there was a time that you came to believe on Christ as your Savior. I think of these children here, young people today. God has a purpose for every one of you in in this life, and and you seek to know His will and to do His will and uh, find out what He wants you to do, and then ask Him for the grace and the guidance to do it. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me, In verse 5, he says, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. Again, he encourages him. There is none else. See that the last chapter we had studied the folly of all the idol makers and the idol worshipers, how foolish it was. And God says, of all those that you've made, remember that they made one out of... of, uh, metal and then out of wood the smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals and fashion it with the hammers and so on the carpenter stretcheth out his rule marketh it with a line fitteth it with planes we have that in the last chapter and he makes an image an idol to worship and he bows down to it and he prays to it but here he says I am the Lord and there is none else there is no God beside me I girded thee though thou hast not known me In verse 6, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. That all nations may know, is what he's saying. 
that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west. As far as the, in other words, he says that they may know as far as the east is from the west. He says, I formed the light. Look at verse 7. I formed the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. All of man's comforts and all of man's calamities come from the hand of God. See, God is over all. He's sovereign in His grace and in His power. He says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. When it says He creates evil, it doesn't mean that He makes people to do evil. And He presents evil. The, the evil here has reference to disaster or judgment, that He brings judgment that will befall people who rebel against Him. So, he, as well as giving peace, he can give evil or judgment. He says, drop down, ye heavens, from above, and let the skies pour out righteousness. He's using the form of the rain or the fertilizing rain that comes. And let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation. In the figure of God's blessings upon, uh, of nature upon the earth, He's showing righteousness and salvation as well. He says, let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together as if it were springing up out of the earth. We know it comes from God. In other words, the source of all life, both physical, uh, vegetable, material, as well as spiritual, comes from God. I, the Lord, have created it. It says in verse 9, Woe unto him that striveth with his Maker. Woe unto him that striveth with his Maker. Paul, uh, the Lord said to Saul of Tarsus, later the Apostle Paul, he says, Saul, Saul, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. In other words, he was striving with his Maker, rebelling against God and His Word and His Spirit, is striving with your Maker. And then he says, let the potsherds strive with the potsherds. In other words, let the broken pieces of pottery strive with broken pieces of pottery. In other words, they're of very little value. The pot itself is of clay. But the potsherds are the, just the broken shreds of them. Uh, let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou, or thy, or thy work? He hath no hands. In other words, it's absurd for the pot to give orders to the potter. So it's just as absurd for you and I who are instruments, or we should say not instruments, but creations of God, to strive with our Maker. It's just as, it's more so foolish. You have a couple of passages of Scripture. Romans 9, verse uh, 20 and 21. Romans 9, verse 20 and 21 says this. It says, But nay, O man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay? of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. Then look in Romans 14. Well, that's, that's in another reference. We'll just leave that one for the time being. But if you come down to verse 10, it says, Warn to him that saith unto his father, back in our text, Isaiah 45, verse 10, Warn to him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman, What hast thou brought forth? Can you imagine the infant or the baby questioning the parents about things that they know nothing about? You know, we still have a lot of young people that question their parents. 
quite too often, I would say. It's alright to ask a question if you're willing to get the answer. But don't question everything they do. Because they might know the best to tell you. And we need to encourage parents to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so that they'll know how to live and how to be guided. But for children, I think I mentioned the young man that went away to college and when he got back he was so surprised at how much his dad had learned while he was away at school. And sometimes you young people need to realize that uh, this gray hair and lack of hair at all, older age and false teeth and bifocals and trifocals and all that doesn't mean ignorance. Sometimes it means maturity. But anyway, children should listen and it doesn't mean that young people do not grow up and know a great deal more in some areas. In fact, I admire these children that can... Uh, kick around on these computers and show me. I mean, I, I don't know half what they're doing. They can push buttons I don't know anything about. But it's good that uh, they can help us too, isn't it? So we need a mutual respect. We need fathers to respect their children. It says, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, lest they be discouraged. And sometimes we become so heavy-handed that we fail to give them enough leadway that they can uh, show us that they do know a little bit as they grow up and they're learning. And you can so put down children until they'll not have any incentive, incentive to learn. I used to break uh, young colts, horses, when I was working in a riding stable years ago and take trips up to Sierra Blanca, straight up the canyon, all the way, sometimes two or three times a week as a guide, but we'd break these young colts. And if you get a young colt, a two-year-old, and you ride him over these mountains, and you go and you go and you go, and you can ride them so hard that finally they'll just give up. They don't want to go anymore. They'll just balk. And you can break their constitution so bad that uh, sometimes it's just devastating. To an animal, well, think about a human being. When you put them down and, and ride them so hard that they don't have any incentive to do anything, well, I'll just give up. If that's what it takes, I'll just quit. And you don't want them to quit. You want them to be well-seasoned but you, and brought up with uh, enough uh, sternness that they'll learn how to live and how to do right, but yet you don't want to overdo it. There's a happy medium on all things. But anyway, right here, notice what it says. Warn him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou, or to the woman, what hast thou brought forth? Always questioning the authority and the, uh, the things of the parents. In verse 11, Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his Maker, Ask of me things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. In other words, who was Israel to question God? For Israel, whom God had created. Who was Israel to question God? So also, who are we to question God? He says, I, I have made the earth and created man upon it. You know, we say that in one short sentence, don't we? But little do we realize the, the greatness of that one statement. What did he say? We're just reading it, aren't we? I made the earth and what? And created man upon it. 
When we think of that power and all that is involved in that one statement, you know, if man had written this book, it had taken him about ten volumes to tell what that one statement is about. But God said, I made the earth and created man upon it. Man is what? Wonderfully made, as the psalmist says. The earth is what? 25,000 miles in circumference. And uh, this planet earth is houses and inhabits millions of people. And we all have a place to be fed, taken care of. There's enough land and enough uh, vegetation to provide for all of our needs. There's water that supplies us all the time. There's all the, the riches of, under the earth that provide for our fuel and, and the things that, that man needs. And we say that in one statement as if, you know, it's simple. God made the earth and He made man. You know, just like that. But when we stop and think about the things that are stated in God's Word, it really boggles our mind, doesn't it? And sometimes it would do well if we would meditate more upon that. And then He says, I even my hands have stretched out the heavens and all their host have I commanded. Then when you think of the heavenly bodies... And when you think the sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxies, the galaxies after galaxy, he says, I have raised him up in righteousness. Now, he's back referring to the man that he raised up in righteousness to do this job that he was talking about and had spoken of in the book of Ezra, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, I have raised him up in righteousness and will direct all his ways. He shall build my city. And we know back there from the context that it's, Cyrus that was to build a city. He shall build my city and he shall let go my captives. Now notice this. Not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. You know, when people do anything nowadays, they expect the reward for it. But this was to be done without price or reward. Now verses 14 through 17, it's thus saith Jehovah to Israel. And he's speaking of their salvation. And notice what it says in verse 14. Thus saith the Lord, the labor of Egypt and the merchandise of Ethiopia and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over unto thee, and they shall be thine. They shall come after thee. In chains they shall come over, and they shall fall down unto thee. They shall make supplication unto thee, saying, Surely God is in thee, and there is none else. There is no God. When it says, Thus saith the Lord, the labor of Egypt... He's speaking about the wealth of Egypt. And all this shall come over to thee. And they shall come after thee. In chains they shall come over. And they shall fall down unto thee. Make supplication unto thee. And they'll say, Surely God is in thee. And there is none else. There is no God. In other words, all the idols, all the worshippers of the heathen gods will have to admit that the God of Israel is the true God. And it says in verse 15, Verily thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. The counsels of God are deep and incomprehensible. That hidest thyself. Who can comprehend God in His greatness? Verse 16 says, They shall be ashamed and, con- and also confounded, all of them. They shall go to confusion together that are makers of idols. In other words, God is saying that all of the idol worshippers as well as the idols shall bring about nothing but confusion. They're makers of idols. 
they'd be mighty confused to worship a stone or, or an image made out of a tree stump, as we talked about in the last chapter. Wouldn't you look rather ashamed and confused if you were to go to one of those pieces of metal or object of wood made in the form of an image or a statue or an idol and, and fall down before that thing knowing what it was made out of that and expect to get an answer to your prayer? I mean, you know, that's pretty foolish, isn't it? We, we, we kind of laugh and snicker about it a little bit, but those people were really doing that. And yet we were told in the last chapter that this same stump that they made a, a tree, that they made an image like a man and fell down and worshipped it and prayed to it, we're told in, that, in the last chapter that they took a part of it and they made a fire and they roasted their meat and they baked their bread and then they took the rest of it and burned it up to warm themselves. Something that you could use for that human a, a, a necessity and yet worship something like that? It does show that they are confused, doesn't it? They shall be ashamed and also confounded, all of them. They shall go to confusion together. They are makers of idols. Look at verse uh, 17. But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. We said it had to do with the, Thus saith the Lord, or Jehovah, to Israel. Israel shall be saved. It says, Israel shall be saved in the Lord. And this is contrasted with the idols. They'll not be saved. Israel shall not be saved in, with their uh, idol worship. Israel shall not be saved with their, their uh, images that they've made. But Israel shall be saved in the Lord. And what kind of salvation? With an everlasting salvation. With an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded. World without end. They would not be ashamed. And you and I who after, of course, this is the Old Testament, but in this day and age of grace, who have the full revelation of God's Word, and knowing that we have a covenant of grace sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ, and that He died for our sins on the cross, was buried and rose again the third day, and He's ascended back to the right hand of God, and we believe all that the Bible says about Christ and the salvation that He's provided, I don't think that we shall be confounded it says, He that believeth on him shall not be confounded, shall not be ashamed. So the true believer in Christ has nowhere else to go. Shall not look to anyone or anywhere else for salvation. You look back in Isaiah 28, if you will, quickly. Isaiah 28, verse 16. It says, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation. Look, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone. A tried stone. Christ was a stone. He's the rock of our foundation. He's a tried stone. He was tried by men and, and demons and devils. And he is a precious cornerstone. He's spoken of. Peter quotes this and says he's a precious cornerstone. And it says, a sure foundation. And it says, he that believeth on him shall not make haste. And what it really means is this, that he who comes to God through Jesus Christ for salvation shall never be confounded. He shall not haste to, away, to flee away to anyone else. No enemy shall harm him, and he shall not be disappointed. Whosoever believed on him shall not be ashamed. And Peter says, shall not be confounded. Ashamed, confounded, and disappointed all ring the same, much the same note in a little different way. 
And it speaks of Christ here as the sure foundation. He is the stone. He says, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He is the tried stone. The devil had him in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, in the wilderness temptation, and he came out victorious over Satan, and he came out of that temptation in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he is the precious cornerstone to the believer. 1 Peter 2, verse 7. And so back in our text, Isaiah 45, in verse 17, But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or confounded world without end. Look at this. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Look at that. He not only created the heavens and formed the earth and made it, he established it. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 that Christ, He is before all things, and listen, by Him all things consist. That word consist means they're glued together. That they fill in their place. That they hold their place in the universe. By Him all things consist. That's why you have a complete orderly universe. That's why that the sun, we see the sun and the moon and the stars in their due season. We see everything working in absolute harmony. Nothing out of place. If God were not in control of it, it could all fall into chaos. But he says he created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. That's why God made the earth was that it would be inhabited. When it says the earth was without form and void, well, something took place that caused that. But I'll guarantee you he said that he didn't create it in vain at the beginning. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. Not like the heathen gods that had everything said and done in darkness. And the heathen, well, we might say the, the ones that mutter and the soothsayers and etc. Et not those. He says, I'm not like those. He says, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not to the seed of Abraham, seek ye me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. You see, God's word is open. It's, it's public. It's preached. It's declared. It's not something that's spoken over here in a corner so that no one else can hear what's being said. It is to, it is to go out. And people can either accept it or reject it. But it's not going to change God's word or God's mind whether man accepts it or rejects it. It's still going to be the same. You see, you don't have to beg people to do anything. You say, God says this. Paul says, brethren, I declare unto you. What did he say? I'm going to talk to you about the gospel and, and hope that you'll agree with it. No, he says, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. He says, what? How that Christ died for our sins. He didn't say, now there's a question in your mind whether he died for our sins or not and start a little uh, chit-chat back and forth. He says, I want to tell you what the gospel says. What is it? How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And how he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he says it, it's not. He, he didn't present it in such a way. You know, sometimes we act like we're apologizing for what God says. We don't have to apologize for anything. Just tell what God's word says. And people can either take it or leave it. Say, preacher, I don't like your attitude. Well, God says that's what it is. <laughs>
You know, he didn't say, well, you know, I'm going to tell you now, if, if this doesn't suit you, I'll calm it down a little and make it to fit your opinion, and that way we can compromise on every hand. No, God didn't say that. He said, I'm going to tell you what it says, and that's the way it is. I like what God says. He says, I established the earth. He didn't say, well, it'll probably fall apart pretty soon. No, he says, I established it. It'll be there. Right? And his word. Did you know the Bible says that God has magnified... Now, listen carefully. We know the name of God is great. We exalt the name of Jesus. We exalt the name of God Almighty. God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has a lot of names... Uh, given to him. He's the Son of Man. He's the Son of God. He's Emmanuel. He is Jesus, Savior. He's the Anointed. He's the Christ. He is uh, the, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and so on. But the Bible says that God has magnified His Word above all His name. Can you imagine what, what uh, authority and what honor God has given to His Word? And yet we treat it so lightly. But he says he's magnified, I think it's Psalm 138. See if it is. Look at Psalm 138. I'd like for you to read it yourselves. If, if it's... Uh, verse 2. Well, let's read verses 1 and 2. You ought to mark this. Psalm 38, verses 138, verses 1 and 2. 138, verse 1. I will praise thee with my whole heart, before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness. Here the name of God is exalted, isn't it? Praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. Now look, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Because it is the word that exalts his name. You see, if he just magnified his name and the word didn't exalt his name you wouldn't have anything to magnify the name with. But his, his word is magnified because that same word exalts the name of the Lord. All right, let's get back in our text in Isaiah 45. We'll try to hurry and finish this chapter quickly. Look, notice in verse um, 19, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not to the seed of Jacob, seek Ye me in vain. I, I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together. Look here. Draw, ye that are escaped of the nations, they have no knowledge that are set up, that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. In other words, these are referring to those who do not know God. They have no knowledge. A man doesn't have much knowledge if he sets up a wood, a wooden image, a graven image, and prays unto a God that cannot save. And then it says, Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together, these nations. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior, and there is none beside me. He says, You check it out. Let the heathen nations assemble together and find out who's declared anything from the ancient times. And so he says, he comes to the conclusion, no one but the true God, a just God and a Savior, and there's none beside me. In verse 22, he says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, and I'm God, for I'm God and there's none else. He says, do not look to these idols 
Are these images, your graven images, your molten images, your false gods, your false deities? Do not look to them. Look unto me and be you saved. What? All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Now look. Not only the Jews were to look to him, the nation, but all nations and all people. In verse 23, we'll hurry. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear. Now that's the one, Romans 14, that we started to give you a minute ago. Verse 11 says this, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord. Paul says in Romans 14 and verse 11, this same thing. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Romans 14, 11. The book of Philippians chapter 2 says this, let this mind be in you, which verse 5, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, <coughs> was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Verse 9 says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's predicted. Paul spoke of it in Romans 14, verse 11. He spoke of it in Philippians chapter 2. And Isaiah predicted it. Now then, we'll have two verses and we'll close. Isaiah 45, verse 24. Surely shall one say... Shall one say, In the Lord have our righteousness and strength. That's what one should say. Even to him shall men come. That's who men should come to. And all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. His enemies will be ashamed. Look at three things here. What? Surely one shall say, In the Lord have our righteousness and strength. Then the second statement. Even to him shall men come. The second thing. And then. The enemies. And all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed, confounded, confused. Now then, look at this last verse. It's full of meaning and we'll close. It says, In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. In the book of Acts chapter 13, let me read two verses. Verse 38 and 39. And preaching Christ... Paul says this in the New Testament. It says, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, and he's referring to Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Didn't Jesus say that, that in my name, beginning at Jerusalem, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name, beginning at Jerusalem to Samaria and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth? It says... It, through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sin. Now, verse 39, look at this. And by him, all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. By him, all that believe, are you a believer? Are justified, just as if you had never sinned. Justified from all things. From all things. There's nothing left. And it says you could not be justified from these, by the, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses because you couldn't be justified by the law itself. 
it says those that are justified by the law, that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, right? And no flesh shall be justified in his sight. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 4, the last three verses, that it was not written for his sake alone, referring to Abraham, that he had God's righteousness imputed to him. But it was not written for his sake alone, but for us also. If we believe on him, listen, who was delivered for our offenses, that's Jesus, and was raised again for our justification, we'll be justified and we'll have righteousness. And therefore, Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, referring back to that, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful gospel, isn't it? It's imputed, God's imputed righteousness because of our sin bearer and because of what Jesus did for us on the cross of Calvary. We have no good to claim ourselves, but God says, I'm going to impute my righteousness or count you as righteous. It's pretty good to be counted that way because we're not, isn't it? If we depend on being righteous, now then, it doesn't mean that God will not change your life and make you a better person than you would be apart from His grace. But it does mean, it does mean this, that you don't have anything within to brag about and that you can be thankful that through Jesus, your sin bearer, your sins are forgiven, you're justified, and in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And Paul says that twice. In, Rome, in Ephesians 1 verse 14, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of His grace. Colossians 1 14, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So we thank you for your patience.